What's up? It's Ben Decker. I'm here on the Modern Spirituality Show with my friend Alexandra Roxo. You may have seen her on Netflix's Too Hot to Handle. Uh, maybe you've read her book, Fuck Like a Goddess. Uh, she's an amazing author, an amazing poet, writer for years. She was an artist. Uh, one of the many ways she expressed her creativity was through the creation of the show, Be Here Now-ish, which you will love uh, if you mm-hmm. haven't already experienced it. And um, she's also the host of the Holy Fuck podcast. And I'm super stoked to be here with this amazing woman. She helps uh, women and, and men and couples access uh, their the common thread between spirituality, sensuality, sexuality, and living a really fulfilled life. So I can't wait to introduce you. Thank you for being here. Welcome, Alexandra Roxo. Thank you. You did a great job introducing me, Ben. (laughs) I feel like I was like, you know, you just like, you gave it, you gave it all, you you know. I also love, um, you know, long walks on the beach and dance parties. (laughs) Yes, and and you live in a beautiful mountain home in Boulder, Colorado. You travel all over the world. You're multilingual. Yep, half Brazilian. Half Brazilian. You speak Portuguese and English. Yeah, which is so fun. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so yeah, there's so much to say. And the, the reason that's funny, guys, listening and watching um, is because right before we press record, I was like, am I going to do okay on your intro? <laughs> that's why. <laughs> I, I give you an A plus. He did great. He got an A plus. Yeah. Yay. Pat on the head. Good boy. <laughs> a good boy. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, be having this conversation with you because I've always really appreciated uh, since we first met, I've always appreciated your sincerity in in person. You know, um, I I had some level of familiarity, I think, in the periphery because we because of how many mutual friends we have. Um, so some level of awareness. I think I had heard of your book, mm-hmm. and and that you had released that book, and uh, but I but I. I know also as an author that there's a difference between what we've released and what it's like to really be with us. There's a yeah. there's resonance, but um, I have always been really grateful to have that experience since we met of what, what you bring to the present. So I'm happy to, to bring you in. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I love that feedback. And I get that a lot from people. It's just like, wow, you're really honest. You feel really genuine. And I'm not sure if it's because we met in LA. I lived in LA for six years. I lived in New York for 12 before that, off and on. And I'm not sure if it's because there's like an expectation that in LA people are putting on a show or kind of making it about themselves or that there's a level of fakeness or um, for lack of better words or performing, but I feel like because I had my most formative years in New York city, I moved there when I was 18, that there's like a frankness that you cultivate living in New York, a no bullshit. And when I moved to LA, I was just in that no bullshit. So if somebody, if somebody, if I met someone at a party and they were like, let's hang out, I would be like, great. And if they were flaky, I, I would call them on it. And I would be like, Hey, you said you wanted to hang out. Is that still true for you? Right. You know, instead of just like sort of pretending that we never had those conversations. (laughs) And I definitely got my little tender heart hurt sometimes at first because I didn't. Because you're actually really sincere and really tender also. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. 
So in those moments, I was like just being genuine and asking and trying to kind of weave and and find my people when I landed in LA. Mm -hmm. And that was the harder part. It's like, I remember um, Brie Luna of the hood, Witch. I don't know if you follow her. She's amazing. She once posted something like um, not responding is the California. No, like just (laughs) silence, not responding to a text. Right. Right. And I that really resonated with me because I was like, oh, if people like don't respond, that's a no. You know, that's well, just. <laughs> I have to say, as a Libra, okay, uh-huh. there's there's another side to the not responding. Okay, uh, you know, the Libra's always presenting both sides. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yes, I please. That. I also know that for me, I I don't always respond. And, and it's really about me. It's really about like, I'm hiking right now. And I intentionally left my phone at home and I'm upstairs with saw right now. And I left my phone downstairs on purpose, you know? Yeah. And so I, and then sometimes this is so controversial and, and for everyone who I know and love, like, I love you. Literally, this is, don't take this personally. Sometimes I will read it. And I won't know what to say. Like we have to know that each and every one of us, we're always in different states and, and places of consciousness in that moment. If I'm, if I'm sensing that I'm not fully in like the right place to respond, I literally need a second. You might get residue of something else, not necessarily in a, in a bad way, but you know how they say, don't make promises when you're happy. Uh, don't make uh don't make criticisms when you're angry. Oh, I I haven't heard that, but I love that. Yeah. So there's, there is like something I learned and I, and I haven't always been this way. I'm a fucking talker. Okay. I will literally talk over you, you know, but you a talker, (laughs) but Mary, always like really amazing spiritual facts and really scholarly things. <laughs> yeah, it's totally well. You go there with me. You you're always here in like the geek zone with me. So, but, <laughs> but something Marianne Williamson um, started to speak about a couple of years ago. I sort of remember when it like came into her life because it sort of was when she started to teach about it. She said she reads biographies of accomplished people, and something that she and she studies them, and something that she's noticed is they don't respond right away. Mm -hmm. They take a beat, you know, and, and it's, and I'm, I have that tenderness that a similar kind of tenderness. I have like a tender heart. I'm like, I'm over here. People Scorpio. I have like a lot of Scorpio in my chart. I'm a Libra. Yeah. Yeah. Get the bad rap, but it's super sensitive too. Super sensitive. Yeah. 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 I'm Pisces. And I also don't respond to people for weeks sometimes, but I always respond eventually. Okay. Not always. Sometimes I miss things. Exactly. It's not always a no. It's not always a no. No, no, no. When I miss things, sometimes I just miss them and then I feel really bad about it. But there are, yeah, there are texts in my phone that I haven't responded to in maybe a few months. Like, so I... And um, not really ghosting. I don't I don't believe in that as like truly. No, but 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 this is where I'll say I think I'm not sure if Saad did, did, like did the research around this, but my friend Ruby, who, you know, mm-hmm. Warrington was telling me about 
the kind of the capacity that we well, saw also has this incoming in his next book, the capacity, how many friends we can have at once, how many people we can get to know. And so, you know, we have like an inner circle, which I think is like five and then 15 and then 50 and then 150 or something like that. Don't quote me on those exact numbers. But so when my inner circle text me, I always text back within 24 hours. Okay. Not always, but mostly, um, or I'll text and say message received in a crazy day. Love you get back soon. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that I feel like I have the capacity to always do, um, is to just write something fast or do like a three seconds, like having a crazy day, but I'll be, I'll get back soon, you know? Um, but only am I going to do that to maybe, my inner five or maybe my 15. Right. Right. When we start going past 15, it's like, I can't. <laughs> it's like, oh my well, God. A literal capacity, a physiological capacity thing that, that you're talking about. And then there's also the reality of, um, you know, once you have an audience and a profession where you, where there are students and, and colleagues that, that enter in and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that we, every person's different. So the, so the numbers, like you said, don't quote anyone on it. The numbers are going to be different based yeah. on individuals, you know, but um, this comes up, what, what this brings up for me, especially something I think is interesting to talk with you about um, is intimacy. Yeah. It's like what Sa and I call our relationship. We say that we are the Maha Sangha. Mm. We have the Sangha. But he and I, it's the one-on-one that just we have. And then there's, you know, those concentric circles um, out from that place, you know. And um, and so what does what comes up for you around that the this in this notion of like the the intimacy and the the layers of relationship? Well, there's a great book and also an audio series by sounds true actually with Stan Tatkin. I think it sounds true. Uh, and it's called your brain on love. It's well, his book is there's one called wired for love. One's your brain on love. Mm. And um, one's an audio series. One's a book. And he talks about in that, how, when we have a primary attachment person, like a person who, their emotional state, their mental state, everything impacts us very deeply, that that's the relationship we need to tend to first. So if that person is going through something, or if we're in a conflict, we need to repair that because otherwise everything else trickling downward will be a mess in a way. And I love the way he puts that. And it's like creating the stable foundation with the primary partner so that then you can arrive to all these other people. Now, I don't think that that's available 24 seven. We're all human. Sometimes we're in a fight and somebody has to do something and the fight doesn't get repaired. But I do think that having that mahasanga that you prioritize the union between two people. And so sometimes that may mean putting other things aside. I think in our culture today, there's a lot of me for me, like me first, I got to prioritize myself, my self-care. And a lot of that is beautiful. And there is a shadow side of that, which is, oh, well, I can't repair this rupture right now because I need to go 
um, take care of me. It's a fine line when we're dysregulated to discern that, to discern, wait, is that true that I need to leave this primary attachment bond to do go take care of myself? Or as I repair the primary attachment bond, am I taking care of myself and my partner? And I'm not an attachment therapist. I'm an eternal student and I'm constantly studying and learning and going to trainings and reading books. But that to me resonates in my heart spiritually Mm -hmm. as um, if this primary attachment bond, like you said, this Maha Sangha, if this sets the stage for the rest of my life, how could I just turn away from it if my partner is hurting, right? Even if how they're hurting is irrational, silly, uh, messy, right? Could I extend my devotional heart of love beyond my ego, which says they're being really ridiculous right now and commit to loving them, holding space for them, seeing them in their highest, even though they may be behaving in their lowest, Um, not to use just, you know, black and white languaging, but just to explain clearly. So to me, that feels important. And I do think when you've been on your individual path for a long time. And I think you and I are kind of, and, and saw, and my partner, and a lot of people we know, it's like, we've spent a lot of time healing and working on our careers, right. And being really uh, devoted to our spiritual paths. So to then switch perspectives and to go, okay, now though, I'm going to invite this other person in, and this will be my spiritual practice. To not turn away from love, even in the moments where I really want to turn away from love and to feel how I would prefer to just go off on my own and do me for me. Mm -hmm. And just like, that's how I know, I know my independence, that's comfortable, et cetera. Then the leap becomes, what if I could not just run off to myself, right? But if I stay in the room. And so that's where I'm at in my journey. And I definitely see it rippling in in friends around me. And it feels like a maturation and crossing a threshold together. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm totally seeing that. That's I mean, that's I love the way that you articulated that, because um, the the teachings, all these different spiritual teachings from different traditions always place an enormous emphasis on the value of. Um, of sincere, compassionate union bond uh, between individuals and and one another, uh, and in and between the individual and the divine. Yeah. Um, something that I love about a course in miracles is this idea and this practice of seeing the divine in the other person that you're with. And of course, it's not from a course in miracles, but I I love how they sort of. Uh, sort of normalized and modernized and sort of channeled through this technology of what a miracle is, which is to see love where there was fear, to see divinity where there was humanity. Yeah. I love that too. And I think that's where we become mirrors for each other. And we also reflect when and where we are not in love, you know, where we're in fear, where we're in judgment, where we're have lost the heart, you know, and that is an equal part of the journey of loving. And, and it's humbling because 
we get to see, wow, on my own, I can be loving and joyful all day. And it's amazing me and God, and I'm praying and chanting and I feel high and bliss. And then you put another person in the room and though I love them, they're like stomping around and then they're doing this thing and they're in a bad mood today or da, 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 you know? And then it's like, can I still be love, right? And can I still be love now? And mm-hmm. to me, that's a lot harder, you know, and that reveals Ooh. to us <laughs> all of our resistance. It's like, Ooh, where am I resisting? And, and where do I just leave my heart because someone else is grumpy or someone else annoyed me? Like, do I fall off, you know, the sort of throne of my heart because of one little trigger? Or can I stay in it and go, ooh, that's really hard. That really hurts. That's really tender. But I'm still going to stay in my compassionate heart. And that's, I mean, it's a moment-to-moment practice. It's not, I don't think it's something we just nail and we're done with it. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's it's like uh, it's like a conditioning, a strengthening, and a, and a conditioning that happens through experience and over time. And I remember one of my first experiences uh, with psilocybin. I was, I don't know, maybe like 19 or something like that. And we were at the beach and it was a full moon and we ate a little bit of these mushrooms and we were, you know, playing drums and singing and dancing around under the, and howling at the moon. And uh, as you do. And um, I remember walking back to our campsite, which was in the Leo Carrillo Malibu campsite. Uh, right across the beach. So we were walking underneath the the PCH straight to the beach from our um, from our uh, campsite. And so we kind of all got separated. It's late. We're all making our way back at our at our own little pace. And a lot of it got very meditative that night. And I was walking back and it was so dark going through the woods back to our campsite in one moment that I couldn't see where I was. And it felt like a big stark contrast from being in the moonlight where it felt like you didn't need anything, you know, and all of a sudden I was alone in the darkness and the psilocybin then gave me sort of that reflection of that fear experience where the quote unquote bad trip comes in, you know, the infamous bad trip, you know, and um, what I witnessed in that moment was even though I was afraid, even though I had fear wash in, I was standing up in the darkness out in the woods somewhere. And I pretty much knew the direction to keep walking in. And I just had to breathe through all that discomfort and it unearthed primal childhood fears, childhood fear of the dark, of the what goes bump in the night, all of those different kinds of things came viscerally forward. And I remember walking, even though I was so afraid. And I was like, this is what growing up looks like. It's moving forward in the dark, even though it's scared, even though it's scary, even though you're still scared, you're going to keep moving. So like you're talking about that trigger, that pain in the moment. And just even though this sucks right now, even though this is like totally pushing me over the edge, I'm I'm going to sit right here. Yeah. Did you make it to the campsite? Okay. I did. <laughs> wow. Was, I came, I by the time I made it to the campsite, I was like an enlightened master as you, oh as my you know, God. Those, the mistakes wow. of, the, of the psychedelic wow. movement is those moments where you think you're an enlightened master, you know? And, <gasps> 
You're like, and, I just had a realization and now I am your teacher. Yeah, that's like the primary in a nutshell problem. Like that's like the biggest shadow problem of those kinds of things. But for me in that moment, it just walked me through that one illumination. Yeah. And it came up really strongly when you were describing um, our fears. Exactly. And that's when you get to see how do I, who do I, not even how, who do I become? Mm in the face of my fears, you know, do I become an angry, mean person, a judgy person? Mm-hmm. Um, or can I, can I continue to be the truth of who I am in the face of my fears? Uh, and the fears could look like rejection, abandonment, um, not getting what you want. Right. Um, and, and I also shame. think it's important to say those, those fears that you're describing, sometimes they don't even look like that. Sometimes you have to like get through. Oh yeah. That's the, the bottom level. That's like the core underneath everything. Yeah. It's like to get even in there. Cause actually I'm pissed off at you for blah, 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 blah. For right. that thing you said, blah, blah, blah. But I specifically told you blah, 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 blah. And then you were like, blah, blah, blah. Right. When I told you to blah, 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 blah. So there's all, totally. there's always that story, right? Exactly. This is the stuff under the story. Exactly. Under the story, we got shame, we got guilt, we got denial, we got repression, we got rejection, you know, but the story on top is, see, I'm no one ever wants to play with me. No one ever chooses me. See, I, or, you know, see the, the men always leave, right? Whatever that is. Right. Oh yeah. And you always do this here. Exactly. That's, you know, you're in a story then. And, you know, that is part of the journey that's rough. And we, we joke about it and, you know, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? You know, Um, know. do you want to be right? Or do you want to be present here in your body? Uh, And it's funny how the right, the wanting to be right for a lot of us who have that kind of shadow persona is probably because we're deeply trying to defend something inside of us that didn't ever have the space to really be defended. And so it's like now as adults or whatever, we get to say, no, I don't like it when you throw your clothes on the floor because it's right where I trip on them to get to the bathroom. And that's wrong. That just doesn't make sense. Right. (laughs) It's like, of course I'm right. And the feng shui says no laundry in front of doorways. Exactly. And that's an absolute. And so I'm right and you're wrong. And you should stop doing that right now. (laughs) Yeah. See this feng shui link? I'm I'm correct. I'm correct. Right. And (laughs) I'm giving like a really silly example, but that's the sentiment behind it. Right. It's like, it's usually, I mean, it, it definitely is about domestic things, but also it's usually about more tender things, or it can have be problems that have a little bit more gravitas, but the end of the day, it is that same thing of like, if two people are trying to be right, they're going head to head. They're literally going head to head, analytical mind to analytical mind. And so, and so debate competition. Exactly. And that's not the heart that is not living from love. That is not living from the heart. And I do think that's appropriate in court. If you're a litigator, you're a lawyer, you're defending a a trial, you know, a case, but in the bedroom with your lover. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got to drop into the the body. 
And somebody's got to be the one that puts it, puts down the rightness first, you know, someone's got to be the one, you know, and I'm learning. I'm like, I'm always like, can you please just do it? And so, yeah, can you do it? Can you please put it? Yeah. (laughs) Are you taking the higher road? Exactly. (laughs) Um, I really like for you to take the higher road for once. Yes. It's your turn to take the higher road because (laughs) I did last time. <laughs> I always um, take the higher road. I, <laughs> I remember once Moon saying to me, Moon to Simone, Sadi Simone's sister, who's one of our dearest friends and you know family. I remember her once saying to me, "You've got to learn not to bite each each bait." That was not the word she used. That's not really her language, but she's like, "Don't fall into every fight. You choose which ones that you fall into." Yeah, I love that. And I didn't grow up with brothers and sisters at home. So I probably have less practice with that. But she, but I last night I was in the shower with my partner and I said something like, um, I made a statement and he was like, no, that's not how it is. It's this. And I was like, you know what? I said out loud to him. I said, you know what? I'm going to take what Moon said and I'm just going to start going, uh-huh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like a part of my independent feminist woman, you know, who was born in in when I was 18 at NYU would be like, Oh hell no, I'm going to be right. You know, and never want to be a woman who was like, Oh yeah, honey, sure. Whatever you say. But mm-hmm. it, there are these moments where it's not about repressing one's truth, but it's about choosing. Like, you know, if he says like, you know, that laundromat is actually better. Like, do I really need to get into a debate with him about why the other one is better? Choosing, choosing your your battles. Prioritizing. It's like, (laughs) maybe you're right. There was something I had to learn at the beginning and throughout of my relationship with Sa is this idea that, okay, you do things completely differently than me and you seem to have survived. (laughs) So, um... I'm going to let you have 1% of the control. <laughs> <laughs> I will relinquish between one and one and a half percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where our partners are really our, our spiritual teachers because in those moments, and it's like when, when our grip gets so tight, that's just our grip on life, on everything. That's, it's just a, a microcosm. It's like, if I'm, wanting to control so much in this relationship, then that's probably me in general. That's probably my relationship with God, goddess divine and life that I'm not just trusting the flow of that to be met, to be filled by the energy of the divine. So, but it's definitely deep practice. And I can see why in generations past, people didn't have the tools or resources to actually practice. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they would go into repression or denial right? or ignoring each other or kind of aggressive fighting or yelling or blaming. And I think that what we're living is such a gorgeous evolution because we're, we're moving beyond that and we're experiencing the relationship as our spiritual practice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And that I just feel to be the next frontier. I think Richard Rudd of the Gene Keys also says something like that, that this is a new, it's not a new path and like literally, but we're approaching it newly now as, oh, what if this was just another path to awakening? Right. Relationship. 
Right. Yeah. I love that. The, um, all of the major world religions have some sort of symbolism around our oneness with one another in the Eastern traditions. It's often said, literally, we are one. Uh, there's, there's one life and infinite points of view and the Judeo Christian Islamic traditions. We hear about being family in the Quran. It said that you and I are just two fingers of one hand. Mm. We're all brothers and sisters. There's these symbols of we're, we're family. We're, we're children of God. We're brothers and sisters. We're, uh, we're reincarnations of each other. We're, we live in parallel lives of people who have different races, different genders, different everything from us. We have parallel lifetimes with yeah. and as them. So there's this very definite interconnectedness that we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. So yeah. everyone's got a different metaphor or story or definition of what that interconnectedness really, really is. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that regardless of the details, the important part of that message is that we are connected. Yeah. And so there's something extraordinary about that realization and the meditation and practice of that realization uh, you mentioned Sa's new book. Sa De Simone has a new book on friendship coming out <laughs> that we both uh, were a part of the the uh, creation, inner creation process with him on. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the beautiful things that he talked about in there, uh, you mentioned earlier, were this, the circles of friendship capacity. But the thing that's coming up now is the, the three jewels of Buddhism. Yeah. The Buddha, the enlightened self, uh, the Dharma. Uh, or the or the way the teachings and the sangha the community yeah yeah i love that i love that so much and that's it that's how we have a spiritual life you know we have the teacher the teachings and the community together and i say this to the communities that i lead and i have one right now that we're in a nine month journey together and i'm like you guys we can't do this alone we are relational. We learn and resonance with each other. We feel each other. We give each other permission. We enliven each other, which I grew up in Georgia, going to the church, the Presbyterian church. And I mean, I deeply remember the line in the Bible when two or more gathered in my name, I'm there. And I firmly believe that across all traditions, I believe it in magic and ritual that practicing on your own is incredible. Some people are so adept at that. And And I do think that there are some of us who our magic is deeply unlocked, reflected and amplified when we are together, praying, invoking, ritualing, uh, and that that's part of our humanity that in the Western world, we have lost contact with on a whole. And so each time that we gather in ritual, prayer, invocation, healing ceremony, whatever you'd like to call it, we're restoring a link as Westerners to a spiritual life and to a spiritual life. That's not just about getting something right. I'm not going to just pray so that I manifest my dream house, or I'm not going to pray so that I manifest my partner. 
I'm doing this to honor life and the goddess and the divine and the trees. Oh my God. And the skies and the rains and the oceans. This is so common in many, many indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. The idea of the spiritual materialism and capitalism, it's like a spiritual capitalism. If I pray, I will get X. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that ever, but that can't be the foundation of our spiritual connection or our spiritual life. That is the shadow part of the Western spirituality. So I love that we can restore a link to having a spiritual life because we are spiritual beings incarnate in human bodies. And we don't know why we're here. And it's a mysterious, beautiful thing. And so we are in reverence to it every day. And so this idea of coming together with the Sangha is that it's like, it is such a deep restoration of something that is within each person and that the Western world, I think is deeply hungry for. Absolutely. You know, and, and it does have a parallel in the, in what we consider the Western traditions. Um, The, this, I mean, it's the teacher, the teachings and the community, like you said, it's the, it's the Christ, the gospel and the church. Yeah. Christianity has its own expression of it at its best case scenario at the, at the best case scenario, Christ is a wonderful teacher at their best case scenario. Each religious community at their best case scenario is coming together for something. Yeah. You know, and then like you're, you're referring to spiritual materialism, there's spiritual materialism expressing in wanting to manifest things and also expressing in um, unconscious insidious ways of asserting dominance over other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dominance, elitism, excluding different groups, uh, uh, condemning other religions, condemning certain groups of people. And so even, I mean, I'm not saying that the West, what? Self-centralizing. Self-central. Oh my God. Huge, 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 huge in the West. And I'm not saying that in the West on a whole, and let's even be more specific. Let's say the U.S. I'm not saying that in the U.S. on a whole, we're like void of spiritual life or religion because there's tons of it, but it's as, as, as a country, as a big culture that all lives on, on the same land, there's not a uniting one. And I think I heard Marianne Williamson say something like on the flip side the side of hate, they're very fast to unite and get on the same page and take action. But on our side of love, we all are, are tooting all these different horns and on all these different missions. And we can't, why, why can't we just rally together? Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, that is so true on the side of hate. They're pretty damn organized, you know, <laughs> which is terrifying. Well, from from like a theosophical perspective, the the theosophists in like the 1840s said that the reason that the the military forces, the capitalistic forces, the forces of greed and manipulation, the forces that would harm people in order to to have have a, a benefit to themselves, you know that would harm for a benefit in, in all the different ways. Uh, the reason those forces seem to have an upper hand is because in the physical world, it's their home court. They have the home court advantage. And then uh-huh. the higher qualities, the, the immaterial spiritual qualities, the transcendental qualities are actually coming essentially from another dimension and making themselves manifest into this world and we have to choose it. So there's mm-hmm. like, there's an automatic lower nature 
that unfolds, but then the higher nature sort of has to be welcomed in. There's there's one one uh, one tradition where they say where the where the divine feminine says she says shower me with 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 flower petals, fill my air with perfumes, wash my feet with your tears. You know she says all these things and it's and it's all very poetic. But what 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 we're what she's really saying is access that higher part of you by attuning yourself to the refined higher vibrations, mm-hmm. subtleties, you know, and that's why in ritual and everything, of course, we bring in, I see your beautiful flowers you have there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that you have the books, you know, to have, and for me, I have like the artwork behind me. These are all different things that attune to like finer frequencies. Yeah. And it like is considered in training the lower, the lower nature. So the theosophists literally believed that for a while, uh-huh. the, the animalistic lower nature would, would have control over the earth mm-hmm. and that there would be a transition point, a key singularity transition point. Uh, and they had an astrological prediction, of course, mm-hmm. of the new age, the, the age of Aquarius, where the, the tide would shift and the the forces of light would become so adept in the material world that the that the scale would shift in in that favor for an entire age where Mm -hmm. we would go to like the flooding forth of an entire age of unity and and intimacy and and peace well i don't i don't know much about that but thank you for sharing that um what i what i'm that feels like a perspective of almost like post patriarchal. And I'm like, you know what I mean? Like kind of after shits hit the fan and I'm thinking, but what about these cultures or even like matriarchy or indigenous cultures where the highest vibrations were emanating from their embodiment, their rituals, I'm not saying across the board, every, everywhere, but they're, there is proof um, without it even being a thing they were trying to do, right? Like, is, yeah. you know, and it's That's like, where, what, what happened where it's like where there, the earth was honored, all bodies were honored. And I'm not saying that there was potentially like this heaven on earth, Eden. I'm not saying that, but it does seem to be that there were, cultures and tribes and peoples living in communion with the divine and the earth and their bodies and their blood and guts and sex and all of that. And, you know, I always come back to what, what happened? When was, when did we abandon the earth? And when did we, when was it that all of those peoples that something tried to take them out, you know, and something did bury a matriarchy or a matrilineal culture um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of indigenous cultures. And it's like, if only there was someone to blame, (laughs) you know, like there's, it's like my mind though, it's always wondering how did this happen? How do I live on land that once just used to be other people's land and the heaviness of that karma and that it's that no one has, it's like, it's almost like wanting a a moment of timeout to go, whoa, 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 timeout, timeout. Wait. Okay. We're on these other people's land. We're 
we should sit down and talk about this. Like we should make this better, right? Like we should repair this. Like that was pretty fun. And to live in a culture and a country where we're not doing that as a whole, right? As a whole is tough. And so that, from that perspective, I think, yeah, the theosophical thing that's like, Okay. Yeah. Now it's like a lot of yuckiness and shadow work collectively in order for the tables to turn. Yeah. It's like the collective, well, any, any individual, you, you work with individuals, you, you take them and facilitate them through major changes in their lives. Yeah. And so any major change on an individual level is super fun and easy and goes really quickly. Right. (laughs) LOL. No. Not at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. It, it, it takes years. It years of so much pain and so oh, yeah. and, and ups and downs and beautiful moments, but some gnarly purges too. Totally. And so if that's if that's what it takes for one person to heal through one person's traumas and dramas and, and heartbreaks, then we're talking about billions of people who have like ancestral like no one's quite figured out you're talking about some situations and and when you're talking about these like cultures that have been taken out what what i see and what i feel when you talk about them and these different tribes and communities that have been so um just genocidally removed from an equation just completely bulldozed out of you know out of their homes and out of their situations over the thousands of years um, that we even have access to. And, and who knows like what the primal ways of our early being really were like, you know? Yeah. And, and you look at all of that and it's like, even they were part of the collective process, you know, even they, they, they all had whatever was hyper-specific to, to that moment for them to achieve and create and expand through. And there is something really very interesting about feminine lineages which I think you and I were recently talking about this on our hike. Yeah. The written language is not inherent to nature. It's, it's something that humanity refined. There's, there's things in nature, markings on trees and things like that, that deer or, or other animals definitely do. So we can see that it's, that it's not totally unnatural, but the yeah. way that we've developed and refined written language and the way we teach it in schools for the longest time, women weren't even, taught that way. So true. Yeah. And it was like storytelling and singing and teaching in the kitchen. And, um, and so how, so, so this notion of oral traditions and, and direct transmissions and everything, the, the lineages live, you know, they, they like, they live in the, in the intimacy of direct experience, you know, like, it, that wisdom's there. Yeah. And it's just not quantifiable. You can't like put a, put an exact title on it. You can't sell it. You know, it's like right. that. And there's something really magical about that. And I think talking about the greater history of this planet is such a huge topic. And I am not an expert at all, at all, at all on that. And I'm just a person who is trying to understand it often, like kind of how, how we are, where we are since we are in pretty, intense times. Um, and it's, it feels good to kind of always take it into perspective, (laughs) right. There's perspective and 
on some absolute level, I do trust the flow of it and that we are in this process together. I'm not saying I like all the things that are happening, but that we are in a process and that trusting God, goddess divine is trusting that process, even when we don't understand it. Right. Cause we can't understand. I don't think always the nature of suffering and why it exists. I remember being a little girl and going, why, why are these kids starving? And it's these other countries and why does this and asking my mom who created the universe and who created the universe before that? And who created it? It's just like, these yeah. are questions that, yeah. We'll just let be. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you asked those because the the unanswerable questions are the ones that unlock the infinite explorer mm. Mm. side of you, you know? And so you just like gave us a signal into like the depth of the seeking that you really came in with. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Mm. how's it going on, on too hot to handle? You're like, Oh, well, I was only on season two and three Mm -hmm. and I probably, I don't know if I could have been on the next one, but part of it going there during COVID was the first time I went and I had to kind of stay in in the house for a month that, um, that I was in, not with the participants, but I wasn't even allowed to leave to take a walk for a month. I was allowed to go down to the water and swim, which is gorgeous and like phenomenal and life-changing, but it's kind of intense not to leave the front door of a place for a month and to be able to walk around mental health wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I watched every nineties rom-com when I was locked in that house for a month. <laughs> Recently I was with two friends and we we're on a writer's retreat. And we were like, okay, we're done writing. Let's look for a movie. We're going through all the nineties rom-coms and I'm like, Oh, I just watched Notting Hill. Just watch Runaway Bright. Just I'm like, wow, I watched them all when I was quarantined for too hot to handle. Um, and it was like quarantine in paradise because I'm in this five-star villa, huge, soft king bed, like ocean view. But after one month of that, which was when we were doing season two, I was, I was t- tapped. I was like not having connection and, and with other humans and just being kind of locked away. Uh, I did, you know, see a few people and I had like a handler, like a babysitter who was in the house with me. Um, Mm -hmm. but not seeing anyone like I knew or loved and just being for a month. If I was on like a meditation retreat or something, maybe be different, but I wasn't, I had work to do and I was doing different things. So I wasn't like, I'm doing this as a spiritual test. Can I stay in this house for one month? You know? Um, So when I, when I finished that, I was like, I can't do that again. That was a lot. Like I am a being who really values connection and I need it for my mental health. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back to the States, they were like, no, we want you to come back in the next season. And I was like, well, can I bring my partner? Mm -hmm. Because that would feel really good mental, mental health wise, you know? And And I was able to, and they like, we worked it out so that he was able to come support and he did, we like created a workshop together. But I think after that, it was just like, Alexandra has a lot of needs. And I I was not, I think they knew that if I came again, I wanted my partner to come with, and I didn't want to spend a full month away from him again. Mm 
which felt like such a big decision. You know, the part of me is just like, ah, but you know, you could have kept like doing that. And when I was younger, I would always choose work, you know, or fame or fortune or exciting things. But I really am choosing my heart and, and, and how to be closest to my heart and to be close to love. And that was to prioritize love and connection and not put myself in a mental health deficit. Right. And some people have different constitutions and for them being in like in a house alone for a month, mostly alone with, where you can't take a walk, <laughs> maybe they would be more resilient than me. And, you know, at the end of the day, I did, I did as much as possible. I did all these IG lives and I worked out and I like, you know, I tried to keep myself really busy, (laughs) but still, still isolating. And I think a lot of people experienced that during COVID, not just me, you know, in that moment, I was experiencing something that a lot of people were experiencing, which is what happens when you don't have a hug or touch for a long, long time. My long, long time was not that long, you know? But for me, it was like, oh, my God, I need a hug. (laughs) Totally. It was huge. You know, and I think that that's that's part of what is so crucial right now is like really, really learning who your people are, who you can have platonic intimacy with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I often think about people who are like, you know, you were raised going to church uh, in, in Georgia. I was raised going to the Mormon church and, and in church, it was like, I get why my family stayed in yeah. that religion for so long. Community. Community. People that really have your back. Anytime we needed anything, you know, my mom and dad, they had some tricky times financially raising five boys. They got married. My mom was 19 when my, when my parents got married, she was 20 when she had her first of five kids, had them like all one year apart. She's 25 with five kids. Oh my God. You know, the church, you better believe they helped. Yeah. Raised us. The, the church community raised the family, kept us safe, sane, healthy, um, visited uh, my grandma when she was in the hospital, uh, took care of the kids when my mom was getting surgery, you know, yeah. community, yeah. you know, would you consider going to some sort of a kind of more free spirited alternative church in LA to create that? You know, I actually years ago created something called full circle in oh, Venice. Right. Yeah, and, uh, we had an amazing church building and we had a membership like model or whatever, where it was like free and then you could have benefits if you did one of the yeah. things. And uh, we had a meditation church service every Sunday um, that Michael Beckwith actually helped me kind of like create and Marianne Williamson. Oh. So we had great like family as far as like people who were seasoned in the community who were um, like elders. Yeah. I could Uh, so see you doing that again. Like not the same thing, but creating a beautiful space. Yeah. It was so healing and it was huge and gorgeous and amazing. We brought so many people like you would have been a great, I would have loved to have you there. And yeah. saw, doing the saw method in there, like forget about it. Oh my it. gosh. I love that. I I think hearing you talk about church, I'm like, I want to go, I want to be a part of a consistent spiritual community here in Boulder. I left LA to be with my partner here in Boulder. And I I think that that would be really powerful. When I was in high school, after we left the Presbyterian church, we went to the Unity Church, which is not the Unitarian Universalist Unity. It's its own thing. Church. 
Yeah. Super new agey. Like I remember one time I was having a really hard time. I was 15 and my mom had my stepdad and he, he had moved in with us and it was very fast and it was very abrupt because it had been just the two of us, me and mom for 10 years. And here this man is moving in. And I was like really having a meltdown about it. And I wouldn't even say his name. I would call him that man. Wow. <laughs> because it was so, it was just so scary. foreign to me and scary, terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so one Sunday we're at the unity church, me, mom, and that man, my then stepfather. And there was an angel um, draw an angel interpreter. And she would draw your angel um, who would come to the unity that Sunday. And she was at the front of the church and she was like, um, what I do is I see who in the room needs their angel to be drawn and needs a message to be delivered. And out of the whole group, guess what? You got the angel. She called me up. I was mortified. I was like, are you kidding me? I felt so vulnerable and naked because I felt like I'm in so much pain inside. I'm feeling so abandoned and I'm, I now have to go stand at the front of this group, which was in a huge church by a hundred people. And she drew my angel and she was like, your angel is really present and saying that what you're going through will pass and that you're really not alone. And I just, I remember feeling just like, oh my God, so seen, but also so embarrassed because um, anyway, so that church was always really special to me mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to have to look up and see if they have one in here. In oh, I love unity churches. Yeah. Unity church is a great one. Um, Marianne Williamson was actually, uh, she ran a unity church, uh, years ago in, in, uh, Detroit. Wow. Yeah. Years ago. Uh, but, but yeah, unity church is a great one. Um, the center for spiritual living mm. is a great one. Uh, those are pretty similar to unity. Uh, Agape has a, a whole, like a It's amazing. Yeah. And then we live right near the self-realization fellowship. Okay, great. And where I spent a few years actually. In oh, their, you did. Their monastic training. Yeah. Huh. So uh, I was. Whole different life. You could have done so many different. You could have been so many different people. Oh my gosh. I love like yeah. my introduction to meditation and yoga was via SRF. Cause a friend of mine who I met at NYU when I was 18, she grew up in SRF. And so she introduced me when we were, you know, just little babies. And so I have a deep, special place in my heart. Um, and, yeah. and I love that. Ch- I still listen to some of the chants. Um, there's one that's it's, it's, it's a, it goes engrossed is the bee of my mind on the blue lotus feet of my divine mother. And it's just like engrossed is the bee of my mind on the blue lotus feet of my, and it's just, it's so beautiful. And it's like a trance. And it's just like, you're like, divine mother. it's like the nun singing. Yeah. I'll send you the link. Later. I love that. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know it off the top of my head, but. I definitely want want to hear that. I'm, I'll even put it in the show notes. <laughs> well, I will, you know, I'll tell people who are listening for nearly 20 years when I'm going through a hard time, I just, I listen to sacred song and it helps me so much. And the first thing when people tell me they're having a hard time, hard day, hard phase, I'm like, put on sacred music and listen to it all day and all night if you Agreed. need to and let it be the thing that you hold on to. I've had 
ayahuasca ceremonies, breakups, moments where I'm in the deepest dark and all I can do is focus on Krishna Das's voice coming through a speaker, you know, and like, okay, that's my anchor to reality, you know, which sounds a little <laughs> dramatic, but, but when you're having a hard time, people, especially if there's plant medicine involved or, or breakups involved. Um, and I discovered his music back when I was 19 through that same friend who was a yogi. Um, but yeah, but, but it serves as such an anchor an anchoring right. in of those divine vibrations. Right. Yeah. And I think SRF was a great community for that. The one, the one that stays in my mind, um, helped me listen to like attune to like the voice of the heart. Mm. And like drop into my heart center because I I still will go to there for retreat once in a while, private retreat at the ashram mm-hmm. there here in, in the Palisades. And um, the song is, listen to my soul song, listen to my heart song. Mm. And it's it's like such mm-hmm. a good mantra for just like really. For me, it's like listening, not to the mind, not to the, not to the desire nature, uh, but like, really like, what's my heart actually yeah. singing? Mm. So beautiful. Shout yeah. out to Yogananda, man. Shout yes. out to Yogananda. Yes. Autobiography of a Yogi was definitely one of the books that changed my life that I read when I was 19. And uh, be here now. I read the same time, same summer, New York City, right before I, I did study abroad in Italy. It was a really funny time to have a spiritual awakening and go into a whole yogi phase, right? When I'm about to move to Italy and all the other kids at school are like, oh my God, we're going to Rome this weekend. We're drinking tons of wine. And I'm like, I'm sober, celibate, and a yogi now. <laughs> just like, what the hell? I just was like, but I ended up, I got to Italy the first week of like study abroad. I got there. I met a woman. I came, I walked into her apartment. She was Italian. And there was a Yogananda picture on her wall. And wow. I had autobiography of a yogi in my bag. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I'm on my path. I'm exactly where I need to be. Then she introduced me to a meditation community there of all these yogis and monastics. And that was just an incredible part of my journey. So I, most kids go to Italy to like, you know, have a big Italian moment. I discovered yoga and meditation and I like meditated with these other yogi Italian monastics, like out in like little caves and things (laughs) wearing communal clothes. Like we'd all pick clothes out of a bucket and wear the same, wear sweaters that were communal. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I fell in love with one of the monastics and I was like, Uh, (laughs) just like fully hypnotized yeah he was like why don't you come join us and I was like because I want to like have a family and I don't know if I said make love but I was like I want you to have love in my life and he's like we can both love God together and I was like okay I'm gonna go now Yeah. You know, not everyone is, you know, in, in my family, in my tradition, we we went on a two-year mission. You know, I'm I i did not do it because I, I pretty much left the religion when I when I was 18 or so. But you go on a the tradition is that when you're 18 or 19, you go on a two-year mission for the church and you live like a saint. 
for two years and you, and you're fed by members of the community, every one of your meals, you get up at, you know, the crack of dawn, you exercise and practice, uh, first thing in the morning, early, every single day, you wear specific clothes every single day. And, um, you're always, you're never alone. You're always assigned some kind of companionship, um, at, for two full years, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of what the Amish do. Well, where they go party for two years or whatever. <laughs> one year. Yeah. This is like, you're not going to party at all whatsoever. You can't even listen to music or watch TV. Oh my goodness. Or, you know, it's all religious stuff for those two years. So the con, the concept of me going on these like trips to monasteries and stuff like that was sort of like unintimidating. Mm. because of the mission mm. and it was like three months somewhere i could do that it was like yeah. wow i could do this for four months somewhere that's yeah okay yeah the two-year thing i never did yeah. so that concept was always there so whenever i meet people like you who've actually um also had similar experiences uh you know exploring in unexpected ways especially young reading autobiography of a yogi at age 18 going to a unity church when you're a teenager it's like you're like you're like from the future you are a gen z you're, you're know, like, <laughs> but my mom just you know she, it was part of her she she was playing carolyn mace tapes in the car and teaching me about sacred contracts when i was a teenager and louise hay and um in Led Zeppelin also, you know, it was not just new age. She got me my first Lemurian seed crystal and she, you know, she's not as new agey now, but still she has a a, a meditating Jesus statue in her room right now. She sent me a picture of it, you know, so I can really thank her for bringing me into that at such a young age, because it just was, I learned about my karma or or that I had karma. What was karma? My aura when I was like 12. Mm -hmm you know? Uh, and so we were always the kind of weird ones in Marietta, Georgia. (laughs) I'm definitely wanting to have an entire other conversation just about all this, where I feel like I could have like an entire podcast, just more about what you just started to talk about. I feel like we could have so much fun talking about stories of us growing up. Cause I, it's like me too. I remember I was, I was like 11 years old practicing, seeing my aura in the mirror. Oh my God. Like seeing other and astral projecting and mm-hmm. like astral projecting, teaching people about like, Do you think this is from our past lives that we're just like, okay, we want to start waking up kind of young. You know, I never, I always, the first introduction to the concept of past lives for me was that it was a symbolic way to teach us to love each other. So, so from an early age, when all those things were happening, I already didn't believe in literal reincarnation you know and so i for the longest time i was like um this is conditioned because i was raised mormon and we had all these rituals which unlocked something but i knew that there was more and i was like so this is there's no way i i i thought i was really smart about this idea of like reincarnation being a metaphor for something else and then when i actually went to the self-realization fellowship the monk there um, was asking me about my relationship to meditation. And I had told him that I started really young, that my mother's name is karma, her birth, her given name at birth is karma. So my Mormon mother, who's, you know, my dad who marries my dad, who's a descendant of the founder of the Mormon church, 
my Mormon mother's named karma, you know, it's like, wow. Raised in that whole vortex. He was like, well, have you ever heard of reincarnation? Yeah, of course. And he was like, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot there. If you want to look at it, (laughs) I was like, well, yeah, no, whatever, you know? And then later I actually got into past life regression, hypnotherapy with Dolores Cannon. Uh, And so as a teenager, so I sort of, right. Gosh, so many, all the lives. We have so much fun stuff to like, but I think, I think it's, it's what I would say that makes like the most sense for me. If someone's listening and they, they're not like a reincarnation person. First of all, if you are a reincarnation person, I would say, yes, this is from past lives. Uh If you're not a reincarnation person, there's another narrative that also works for me, which is that there are, there are souls who are prepared before birth Mm. one way or another. If you believe in past right. lives, you're prepared before birth. If you don't believe in past lives, you were prepared in the pre-existence. Yeah. And, and you were born with everything on the inside and outside to fulfill something. Right. To have some kind of opportunity to move through something in co-creation with your circumstances and co-creation with the divine, you know, with your, there's like all this free will component. There's all these creative um, artistic choices we get to make in the process, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So it's, so there is that part of me that feels like definitely one way or another, when I hear you say like, you're learning about karma and auras and soul contracts as a teen, it's like your mother was such a divine hand selection, mm. you know, and whether that's a reincarnation, you guys have karma together or you know, more of a one lifetime, right? you know, I, I, oh, I, I all the psychics have told us that we've known each other many lives. We've been sisters and this and that, you know, <laughs> I love to entertain all of it. Me know? too. And we'll know maybe when we die, maybe not. And I have a long list of questions. Know. What? If we literally never know, like we we'll have, be fine. have like this, like eternal open s- sort of sensual unknown and allow it to be that way. I love that. The sensual unknown. And I will be arriving to the afterlife with a list being like, so was that person really cheating on me? Cause I had an intuition that they were, but I just never really know. <laughs> also were, are there really Pleiadi- Pleiadians running the planetary? Da, 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 you know? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm keeping track here. <laughs> One of the things when I was growing up that they would tell us, that we could do when we were after we die is that you could go to any moment in history anywhere and go experience it as it actually occurred. What did you and, choose or what would you choose? Well, anything no, wait, did you choose? I'm sorry. What did I choose? I'm still alive <laughs> in the regular old incarnations, not like a special new one, this regular old. And uh, I guess whatever that means. And, uh, but, but I always thought about the, the big historic events that have changed history, like the crucifixion, right. like some of these moments that are taught as like, a crucial fact. So as a young, at a young age, I was like, I want to witness the resurrection. I want to go and witness the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That was, right. and you know, that if I, the cool thing to say too, if you're Mormon and you're like, well, duh. 
what else? Would totally. I'm like, what? It's like the right answer. Yeah, exactly. It's like the correct answer. Yeah. And yeah. me, the great student that I am. Yes, absolutely. Right <laughs> okay, well, I would love to keep talking with you. We're, I know. We're, I'm so grateful that you're here. And thank you so much. This for was this. great. And we could yeah. talk for hours, but this was perfect. Yeah, this is a great introduction. I'd love to invite you back and and just like to whatever extent makes sense for you and um, everyone check out Alexandra Roxo. She's the author of fuck like a goddess. And I remember the day you, what I just was going to say, I remember the day you gave me that book. Oh, I love that. You you handed it to me and you said, it's fuck like a goddess, which basically means, and that's what you did. You put it in my hand and then you were like, which basically means, fully embodying and and living from the feminine nature the divine feminine connecting to it yeah i i love that and it's like fuck like a goddess heal yourself reclaim your voice standing your power and i divine it i define it i define it and divine it mm-hmm. as when you're fucking like a goddess or a god or a divine and and in the in the opening chapter i say that or like a cosmic firecracker however you identify that you're opening to life and you're like in a lovemaking with life. Mm -hmm. So you're being fucked by life. You're fucking, you're in a divine circular motion of you give outward your love and your tears and your art, and then you receive. And so it's a bit more of the poetic than of course, we're going to think when we read fuck, Oh, the, the like top layer is fuck. Like a goddess is like, just have physical sex, but it's a bit more of a spiritually nuanced understanding of the word. Your work. That's what I love about your approach is that you're, you're not afraid to use uh, like the controversial languaging, but you are you are deactivating the negative charge and the violence of the F word, right? And hmm. and you're you're actually using it um, to mean sexual union, connection, sensuality, intimacy. And so you're actually like deactivating its negative power. Yes. And I talk about that in the first chapter too, where the word came from, what are some of the various meanings? And I go into that as well, so that it's not just kind of cavalier random, just throwing that word around, but actually really carefully choosing it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, super scandalous of you. Super controversial. <laughs> that was my 2018 self too. Since then I've changed and I've grown up quite a bit. My right. next book is not going to have an expletive in it. So in the title. word, not in the title, but maybe in the book. We'll see. There, I more. think we might be outgrowing some of that. I like, you know, once in a while, but probably right. less than my younger self. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, I definitely want to have you on again. Okay. um, Love you so much. Guys, check it out. Show notes for all of Alexandra's links. Uh, Check out her podcast. Check out her book. Follow her on Instagram. You have amazing content and you are so helpful. I'm like, should I be paying her just to be following her on Instagram? Oh, that's cute. I like that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's my Venmo. Uh, but definitely give Alexandra a follow. And I would be so honored to bring you back and have you on again. Thanks for being thank here. Thank you, my love. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. Yes, lots of love. 
Hey, it's Ben Decker, and I just have to thank you again for listening to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. For information on anything mentioned here, you can check out the show notes below. You can also get in touch with me via twitter.com slash bendecker, instagram.com slash Benjamin W. Decker, or email me at bendecker at modernspiritualitypodcast.com. It really does mean so much to me that you're here with me on the modern spirituality journey. I'm genuinely super excited about what I've got planned for these next few episodes. So really make sure to subscribe to the Modern Spirituality Podcast so you can get in on what I've got coming up. And if this is resonating for you, if anything here helped or inspired or entertained you at all, please, please do rate this podcast and leave me a review. It means so much more than you might realize. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you again.